0: You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the teaching team at New Life in North Lincolnshire. New Life is committed to helping transform people and transform places through the love and power of Jesus Christ. We hope you in some small way will be blessed and transformed by this message. It all comes down to this. What a great little video. Love God, love people. I mean, I may as well sit down after that, because I feel like we've had an amazing example of that already this morning in Julie, and then just this really poignant moment and prompt where you go, actually, let's just keep it real simple this morning, okay? If all we do this week is love God and love people, we would have accomplished so much already. True? Now, I don't know about you, I love this time of year. I love August, generally. It's a time of kind of slow down for many of us, unless you have kids that are school-aged, in which case, suddenly, your life gets really busy really quickly, right? Because you're trying to juggle jobs and kids and holidays and all the other sort of stuff. Abigail isn't yet school-aged, so August, for us, is really a kind of a slow-down month in so many ways, where we're going, actually, before we rush into September, before we get into the onslaught of Christmas... Right. <laughs> Let's just take a minute to go, right, what are we doing here? Is what we're doing what we want to be doing? Are our priorities in line? Is there things we want to change up? Are there things that we want to change as we go forward into the new academic year? Maybe you're like me and you spend a good amount of time over the month of August going, do you know what? Let's take stock of the year so far. January feels like a very long time ago by this point in the year. But equally, we're sort of vaguely suspicious that next January is coming around too fast. And so we spend time, don't we, this time of year just reassessing what we're about. And so this series as a whole, Love Thy Neighborhood, is really just our opportunity to do that as a church. We tend to dust this series off once every couple of years and inject it with new life and go, no, hang on, church. Let's pause before we get busy again. And just make sure that we're doing the stuff that Jesus called it to. That we are keeping it simple. That we're about the business of loving God and loving people. And really all I want to do this morning is pick up near the end of where Sarah left off last week. She said something towards the end of her message that just struck me. And it stuck with me over the, over the week as I've been sort of finalising this and preparing this. She reminded us of the words of Jesus. That those who have been forgiven much, love much... Those who have been forgiven much, love much. But of course, it's slightly more than that. It's not just those who have been forgiven much, love much. It's those who recognize the extent to which they've been forgiven. Because I could forgive you, right? You could have wronged me in some way and I could forgive you. And you may not even have realized that you've upset me, right? So there's something more that's required of us, this recognition that actually, Lord Jesus, there is so much that I require forgiveness for. And we come to a place of recognizing that, I think, as Christians. And so we move from there. And just this thought, really, to kick us off, if we struggle to love in a way that looks like Jesus, perhaps, just maybe, we're yet to fully grasp the extent to which we've been forgiven. If you feel like you struggle to love in a way that looks like Jesus, perhaps, just maybe, you're yet to fully grasp the extent to which you've been forgiven. I know that's true in my life, right? Times where I feel more frustrated, less able to love those around me is usually because I've forgotten the extent to which I've already been forgiven. I start believing my own hype, right? And so in some senses, we need to come back to a place of recognizing the extent to which we've been forgiven. And from that place, I genuinely believe the love that we demonstrate, the love that we give, will look a little bit more like the love that Jesus imagined. We also, I think, as Christians, seem to think we have a monopoly on forgiveness. It's kind of our thing, right, isn't it, as Christians, that we feel like we've got this down to a fine art by now, that we've been forgiven by Jesus, we've been rescued by him in some senses, that we believe, at least in our heads, if not in our hearts, that we should be forgiving towards others, right? So we seem to think that we've got this art of forgiveness down as Christians. And yet, really... We haven't got a monopoly on it at all. You don't have to even look outside of Scripture to find other people with slightly differing beliefs to us who had systems of managing forgiveness. In the Old Testament, the people of God had a whole temple system set up to literally bring about forgiveness, to make sure they knew where they stood with God. They became so focused, so orientated on their standing with God that systems of sacrifice were developed. So they didn't need to worry, really, about whether they'd been forgiven or not. And so we don't even have to look outside the pages of Scripture to realise that we don't have quite the monopoly on forgiveness that we thought that we did. But here's the problem. The sacrificial system, the temple system in the Old Testament, it had no issue with forgiveness whatsoever. But At its very best, it was a system of symptom management. People have sinned. They grieved their neighbor. They grieved God. And what the temple did was restore that sense of balance, restore that sense of forgiveness, that you could stand before God knowing that you were forgiven. But of course, it didn't stop you from sinning, right? It didn't stop you from getting things wrong. It didn't stop you from grieving your neighbor. It didn't actually fix or resolve anything. And so you could think about it this way and forgive me because I'm not a medical practitioner. I'm a a casual runner, which is why ibuprofen is well known to me, right? So the best way I could think about trying to express this is that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was to sin as ibuprofen is to inflammation, Right. right? It will relieve your symptoms. Your swelling will go down. It may help you with pain management, but it will not remove or resolve the underlying issue, And this became the problem, really, I think, of the Old Testament. We read it in the latter half of the Old Testament, in the book of the prophets, particularly we're going to be talking about the book of Micah this morning, where God becomes frustrated with all of the religious performance, all of the sacrifices, all of the symptom management. And he goes, no, we just have to get to the underlying issue. If we could fix the root cause we wouldn't need ibuprofen. If we could fix the underlying issue, we could move beyond simple symptom management. And so from the prophet Michael, we hear the cry of God who is desperate to see his people move beyond the cycles of repentance and forgiveness, that while necessary, and not the point of this life, as, the, as though we live simply with a tick-box mentality about where we stand with God. Or ensuring that our retirement plan in heaven remains secure. If all we do, church, is sit on our eternal certitude, we've drastically missed the point of what God is calling us to. And so I believe this morning as we come through this series, as we begin to draw it to a close this week and next week of this Love Thy Neighborhood Church, my encouragement, my challenge to us is to move beyond cycles of symptom management as we seek to love our neighborhood. And let's do the hard work of dealing with some underlying issues. And so the prophet Micah puts it this way in Micah chapter 6. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God, you ask? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of olive oil? Shall I even offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, clearly, this isn't a suggestion, right? we would call it hyperbole. It's a literary device where he's almost drawing this out to ridiculous proportions to show how daft this mentality is of, hey, as if every new escalation of sacrifice somehow will become a final solution for our own sin. And so the prophet Micah, in the words of God, draws this out to ridiculous proportions and then ridicules it. And he says this, he has shown you O mortal, what is good? Micah 6, verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's justice, mercy, and humility that the Lord requires over and above religious ceremony and great worship services. We could have a phenomenal experience here on a Sunday morning, but if we are not about the hard work, of justice, mercy, and humility in our communities, then could it be that all we do here is as vain and useless as endless sacrifices? And so I'm challenged by this. I'm convicted by this. I can feel myself getting emotional already. Because when the world is crying out for signs of justice, for demonstrations of mercy, it is simply not enough for us to rest in the comfort of our own eternal certainty. When the world is looking for answers, when the world is looking for justice, when the world is looking for mercy and humility to be our marker, it is not enough to rest assured that our eternal hope is secure. It's not enough. And so we have to, I think, if we are ever going to successfully love our neighborhoods in the way that Jesus intended. If we are simply content to sit here and go, I know where I'm going when I die. Church, I've got to be honest, I feel like we've missed the point of all that God has called us to. Fortunately for us, this isn't a new problem. In Luke's gospel, there's this amazing story in chapter 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 25. And it, it says this It says, On one occasion, an expert lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's not a new question, right? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus responded, do this and you will live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself, to reassure himself of his own standing with God. And so he pressed Jesus, which is always a dangerous thing to do. (laughs) And Jesus replied, the man asked, sorry, who is my neighbor? In response, Jesus told a story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next morning he took out two days' pay and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have incurred. Which of these three do you suppose was the man's neighbour? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. If you've been around church for more than five minutes, you'll have heard this story before. Chances are, if you went to a Church of England school, you'll have heard this story before. If you spent any time around Christians, chances are you'll have heard this story before. Even if it's your first time in church this morning, we have organisations that exist here in Scunthorpe and across the country called Samaritans, right? We're familiar with this terminology we kind of know what this story is about and so the story starts a pastor and a worship leader were walking down the street it's not a joke like this not like an Englishman and a Scotsman and an Irishman a pastor and a worship leader were walking down and those are kind of the equivalent the modern day equivalents of a priest and a Levite right it's like the equivalent of Russ and Sam not that Russ and Sam would walk down the street and you know what I mean so a vicar a pastor and a worship leader, potentially with a beard, probably with a beard, was walking down the street. And you see, the problem is that when we read this story closely, if we read between the lines, it appears to me, and I've only spotted this in my reflections over the last couple of weeks, that the priest and the Levi, the pastor and worship leader, are probably travelling the same direction as the man. It seems to me that they seem to be heading down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Because when I've heard this story preached before, I've heard it, that they were travelling the opposite direction. They were probably on their way to Jerusalem. We like to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? They're probably heading on their way to Jerusalem. And the reason why the direction of travel, I think, is so important is because if they're travelling to Jerusalem, they're probably travelling on business. They're going to the temple. They were about important work, significant work in the life of the community, in the life of the nation. And in the laws at that time, if they'd encountered a dead body, it would have prohibited them from doing their valuable and justified work. And so we like to let them off the hook slightly and go, hey, they're probably about really important stuff. And so it's understandable that they rush past the person because how do you tell if a man's half dead or fully dead? Without... Coming close. And so they assume that this man is fully dead. Because if they'd encountered him and he'd been half dead and they'd realized this, they could have continued on their way about their business. But if they encounter somebody who's fully dead, it's a wasted journey. We don't know how far they'd traveled from. We don't know how far they still had to go. But we do know this. If they're traveling to Jerusalem, their work's important. Their work's significant. Their work matters. And so we almost start to make excuses for them, right? Because it's somehow okay for people who, as long as they're about significant work, it's okay for us to pass on by. You see, encountering death, it wasn't a sin, right? It didn't require forgiveness. (laughs) They've not done anything wrong. But within the laws of those days, it would have seen them as being unclean, impure, And so they weren't allowed to administer at the temple in a state of impurity. For good reasons, right? They're trying to protect the holiness of God, the sanctity of the temple, the sacredness of Jerusalem. Keeping with my medical metaphors today, it would be like introducing germs into a clean room, right? To encounter a dead body and to still go about your practice in the temple. It would be like introducing germs into a clean room. It would violate the purpose of that space, And so it's understandable. But of course, if we read closely, certainly in my reflections, it seems as though the worship leader and the pastor are travelling away from Jerusalem. And if that's the case, the only thing I can see that would prevent them from stopping, at best, is mild inconvenience. Because they've fulfilled their duty, right? They've served in the temple. They're on their way home. And I think sometimes our problem within the Western world is very much the same as the problem of the priest and the Levi. Is sometimes all it takes for us to pass on by is mild inconvenience. And we need to look at this. I think it's something we need to look at as a... As a nation, it's something we need to look at as a church. It's something we need to take hold of as individuals and go, if the only reason I walk on by an opportunity for justice and mercy is because it puts me out a little bit, (laughs) I think we need to have a long, hard look at ourselves and figure out whether or not we're happy with the person who looks back at us. Because if we're not willing to get out of our own way for the sake of justice and mercy goodness. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment. Let's assume they're traveling to Jerusalem, that their work is somehow more important than the person who's laid in front of them. Then at best, their decision to avoid the man half dead is less to do with pragmatism and practicalities and more to do with self-importance. Because it would be a really bad system, right, if they suddenly became impure on the journey. That can't be unusual, right? They've travelled in long distances. They could have encountered any number of things that would have prevented them from ministering in the temple when they arrived. And if that meant that the entire sacrificial system ground to a halt, (laughs) it's a really bad system. There must have been other priests present, other Levites who could have ministered worship, other people who could have filled in in their place. And so if, let's say, they are travelling to Jerusalem, what makes them more important than any other priest or Levi who could have filled in their slot at the temple? Because sacrifices still had to happen. Worship services still had to be conducted. Let's say Russ and Sarah lived out of area, and one Sunday morning they're driving into the building and they have a breakdown, right? Not them personally, I mean their car, right? (laughs) I mean, although, you know, never know. And we get a phone call. Hey, look, the pastor can't make it this morning. If there's no one else <laughs> right, who can step in, it's a bad system. Yeah. And so there has to have been contingencies. There has to have been provisions made. And so the only thing, really... I think, that factors into the priest and Levi's decision-making. It wasn't practicalities, wasn't pragmatism, wasn't the importance of the temple, but it was their own sense of self-importance. Because you see, and this is really where I want to hit home this morning, when we see the messy work of justice as beneath us, we descend to the position of the priest and Levi, convinced of our own self-importance. that's hard. I've been challenged by this. I've been preparing this. I've been looking at places in my own life where for whatever reason, no good reason, I've been content to live in a way that continues injustice, a way that prevents mercy, in ways that are at cross-purposes with the purposes of God within creation because it's inconvenient for me. And so this story is a challenge for me because the reality is this. The Samaritan was all the wrong kinds of people. Right? When you look at the nature of the Samaritan, we call him the Good Samaritan. Samaritans as a people were outcasts. They'd been pushed to one side by the Jews at the time of Jesus they were from the wrong tribes they were from the wrong backgrounds the wrong beliefs even they worshipped in the wrong place they had the wrong experiences wrong marriages, wrong lifestyles everything about the Samaritan was wrong apart from his (laughs) behaviour and so if you've grown up in churches you'll have heard sermons or Sunday school lessons on how we should be like the Samaritan You know, we shouldn't count the cost when helping somebody we should stop to take care of the one that's in front of us we shouldn't be like the priest and the Levi, so busy and hurried in our lives that we walk past an opportunity for justice and mercy when it's in front of us. And all of those things are true. But I've become convinced, as I've been reflecting on this passage over the last couple of years now, it's just kept coming back to me, with some of the world events we've witnessed over the last 18 months to two years, this, this parable bothers me. And the first conviction is this. There really shouldn't be a need for a Samaritan. (laughs) We hold him up as the example of excellence, of what it means to serve and to administer and to care compassionately for others. But we shouldn't need him because the pastor, the worship leader, they ought to have stopped, the churchgoer, the normal person. When we consider... The prophet Micah, where we started this morning, where God had been clear and open with his people for a long time, of this is what I require of you. It's not sacrifice, it's not worship services, it's not religious ceremony, but justice, mercy, and humility. Then surely that work ought to have been more important to a priest and to a Levite. And so really, within this story, It should be a much shorter story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by robbers and left half dead. And the pastor walked by, tended to his wounds, booked him in at the inn, helped him, and went on his way. That should be the end of the story. And yet because of the problem, it causes there to be a need for a Samaritan. But my conviction is this. We shouldn't need a Samaritan at all in the world today. We know what it is that we're called to. My belief about God is this. I always feel like it's helpful to tell you what I believe about God, just in case you're unsure. (laughs) I believe, hand on heart, to the very bottom of my soul, that what God cares about, what God is doing, what He is working towards more than anything else is this He is in the business of putting right what has gone wrong in the world. That's it at its simplest. Everything you see, everything you read about in scripture, everything that we believe as Christians that God is working towards is ultimately working towards that end. That there will be no injustice in the world. That everything, regardless of its source, regardless of its solution, everything that has gone wrong in this world, I believe to the very core of my being, God is in the business of working towards making right everything in this world that has gone wrong. And so if that's where we started, if that is true, and I would suggest that it is, so determined is God in this plan, that if we, the priests and Levites, the churchgoers of this world, refuse to engage in the messy, inconvenient work of justice, then God will raise up people who will. Because he has to. Because that is the end point towards which he is working. And if we as Christians will not work on his behalf towards justice, he will find people that will. And we may well find ourselves disgusted by the mere insinuation that God could bring about justice to anyone but us. Because they are the wrong types of people. I believe that if we were sat in the room as Jesus is telling the story, the feelings of disgust would have been evident at the mere suggestion that a Samaritan could do something that a priest and Levite couldn't. But if God's purposes within this world are bent towards justice and we refuse to partner with him in that plan, he will find other people that will and they may look like and sound like and believe the wrong things. But they will be working towards the justice that God intended. Pastor and author Richard Belodas puts it like this He says that the Good Samaritan is a story, uh, sorry, the Good Samaritan story is not just an example of compassionate spirituality. It's a critique against religious passivity. If church people won't work for justice and mercy, God will find some other people who will. So really my question to us as a church is this, will we be the sort of people that work towards justice and mercy, or will God find somebody else? Because I believe he will. It's our choice whether we choose to partner with him, because the upshot is this, if he has to find somebody else, we probably won't like it. True, we'll be critical of their beliefs. We'll be critical of them being the wrong sorts of people, the wrong from the wrong places, with the wrong beliefs, worshiping the wrong way, whatever it is. Whatever reason we come up with, and yet God will still have raised them up, because truly loving our neighbour is a significant step of what it means to partner with God in His master plan to make right the wrongs of this world. It's as simple as that. It's where we started, isn't it? Love God, love people. If all we do is that, we will be taking significant steps to making right what has gone wrong in this world. And so who are we in this story? Are we the lawyer convinced that the most important thing is our own mortality and right standing with God? Are we the pastor or the worship leader, bearded or not? Convinced of our own self importance and the inconvenience of justice and mercy. Who are we in this story? That's not a question I can answer for you. It's a question that I will have to answer along with the leadership team in terms of the church. Who are we as a congregation in this story? Where do we find ourselves? And just as I draw to a close this morning and the band are welcome to come and join me back on stage. I'd love for you to take a moment this morning to consider the words of Jesus. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise regardless of who you may be in this story whether you're the lawyer, the priest, the Levi, the Samaritan or whether you feel like this morning you're the man who's been stripped naked and beaten and left half dead at the side of the road whoever you are in this story know this the ultimate end of history finishes with perfect justice perfect mercy perfect humility I don't pretend this morning to know exactly what that will look like I have some ideas, I think scripture gives us some illusions I don't know how it's going to work I don't know whether at the end of all days in order for others to receive justice, whether I might be put out whether it will cost me inconvenience. Whether I'll lose privilege. I don't know. But the older I get, and I realise I'm only 31. <laughs> so I've got a little bit of more older to do yet. But the older I get, the more I am convinced of this. I'm okay with inconvenience for the sake of justice. I realise I'm saying that publicly this morning. It's always a dangerous thing to do our congregation here at New Life you have my permission to hold me to that standard <laughs> I hope you will Paul in one of his letters we can get through a morning without me mentioning Paul could we he says this he says imitate me as I imitate Christ And within its context, we take that out of context so often, but within its context, really what he's saying is, imitate me in the things of Jesus that you see in me. Because I guarantee you there's a whole load of things in me that don't look anything like Jesus. I suspect there's things in you that look a whole lot different from Jesus as well. And so don't just imitate everything that I do, please, don't imitate everything that I do. The things of Jesus that you see in me, imitate those things as I seek to imitate Christ. Why don't we stand this morning? I'm just going to pray for us right at the end of today's service. If you find it helpful to focus in this moment, why don't you just close your eyes, put your hands somewhere near your heart. Equally, if you've got a better attention span than me, feel free to do whatever you like. (laughs) Lord Jesus, we stand before you today as a people. A people who, for the most part, are dedicated to following you every day of their lives. Of trying to figure out, in our own individual contexts, what it means to walk justly. Mercifully to walk in humility with you. Lord God, we repent this morning. We're sorry for the times where inconvenience has been all that it's taken for us to not engage in the messy work of justice wherever we found it. We're sorry. And we commit this morning to doing better by you. To being better partners in your work of justice in the world. We simply ask that you would help us. That you would guide us by your spirit and remind us of your grace. Thanks for listening to this message from New Life in North Lincolnshire. To find out more, do visit us online at newlifechurch.uk or why not pay us a visit? We'd love to see you.